Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting founder, you know, joining us, a founder that has done it before. You know, uh, she's now on her next rocket ship. The last one, you know, she she had a really fantastic exit. But today we're going to be talking about product market fit, how to really match customer needs with your product, uh, how to go about raising money. How was the experience with both companies, you know, that she's built? when raising money from outside investors, also co-founder relationships, how to value them, why 50-50 partnerships make sense and also, or may not make sense, you know, and also talking about control and decision-making, as well as the role and the purpose when building something from the ground up. So again, brace yourself for a very inspiring conversation today. And without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Jessica Rolf. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Alejandro. It's wonderful being here. So originally, give us a walk through memory lane here. How was life growing up for you? I'm not going to say the, the, the year that you were born in, even though you share it with me, but, but give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up for you? Yes. Well, since you mentioned, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not afraid to share my age. I've been in the early childhood space for 17 years now. So I was born in 1974. And I was born in Minnesota and my childhood was, you know, a lot of um, sort of a typical childhood, except for, I think I was given a lot of extra adult attention and love. So my parents divorced when I was three and I lived in two different households going back and forth. And my mom moved in with her parents. So I grew up with my mother, my grandmother, my grandfather in one home. And I was the only child uh, for my parents' first marriage. And then my dad, um, married a wonderful woman, my stepmother. And in that family, we had, uh, I had a stepbrother, a stepsister. And then my dad and my stepmom gave birth to a, a little boy who's just a wonderful light of our life. His name is Rob and he has Angelman syndrome, a disability. Um, and he taught our family so much about empathy and brought our family closer. So we have sort of two different, very different homes, but a lot of adult attention and love. That's incredible. Now, now for you, it sounds like business, you know, was saying, you know, going to be your path to follow. And in fact, you ended up doing your MBA at Cornell. So what really, what would you say that was that the seed that sparked your, your, I would say, desire for the business, uh, you know, journey or the business path? Yeah. You know, you meet those people. And I know you've talked to so many of them because I've listened to the Dealmakers podcast and all of your amazing guests. So honored to be here. I hear so many people who say that they're just an entrepreneur from birth. You know, they're, they're enterprising on the lemonade stand. They're building on the lemonade. They're, they're offering other snacks and charging up for it. Or they're coming up with, you know, they have 20 ideas by the time they're 20. And for me, I never was uh, an an entrepreneur in that sense. So I never was somebody who just had a million business ideas and could never um, get enough in terms of enterprising. I really have had only one business idea that really works um, in my life. And that is the current business that I'm in. And so I was led to business because I was really curious about the positive impact that business can make to society at large. 
So there's nonprofits, there's working for government, there's working in business were sort of the three things that I thought about when I was trying to figure out my career and purpose. And I was so inspired by people who married purpose and their life reason for, you know, giving back with the, in the business environment. And I found that their marriage of the two can be so powerful. And so I was really drawn to this concept of social, socially responsible businesses or businesses with purpose or values-based businesses. And that was why I went to business school. I wanted to be a founder, create something that could add value to society and also um, be in the business world. Nowadays, honestly, that was back you know, in 2004, I graduated from business school. Nowadays, people think of business in a much more fluid way. It it is much more infused with purpose. I don't think there's one entrepreneur that started something that didn't think that it had a purpose. So I would say that it was sort of old thinking of this has to be either hard business with no purpose or only purpose driven businesses. It's very much a marriage of the two now. But at the time, I was really drawn to that feeling of um, that I could make a difference through the business world. So I know that also for you, uh, it was pivotal moving to Austin, to Austin because, you know, there was an opportunity that came knocking for your husband, but that ended up, you know, changing the course of everything, you know, for you as well. So, so walk us through what happened there. Yeah. So my um, husband had become a recent husband. We were both pondering how could we build a business that could create change in the world in a way that felt meaningful. And we were so inspired by Newman's Own, you know, that Newman's Own salad dressing where you buy the dressing and it donates to charity and it just felt so universal and so positive. He had the idea of creating a food line focused on cancer prevention that would be Lance Armstrong branded. Now we all know kind of how things have played out in the food industry, how things have played out with Lance Armstrong and and this sort of um, charitable businesses. But I would say at the time, it felt really revolutionary. Lance was based in Austin. Um, my husband knew the director of fellowship at, of, of fundraising at Lance Armstrong's foundation. And so we decided to move there and see if we could make the business a go. Turns out that they, the yellow bracelet campaign happened. Do you remember when they were kind of minting money on those yellow bracelets oh, yeah. and they were selling them for a dollar? They were, they were costing pennies, but selling them for dollars. It was and, the one that said like life strong, no? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Live strong. Yeah, 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 and there so there was no interest from the foundation in creating a food line. It was way too much risk. And in the meantime, I had found a job at Whole Foods, hoping to kind of build this, this vision for Lance. And we found out with that our business idea wasn't going to work. And so while I was at Whole Foods working there, I met my partner who I found co-founded Happy Family with, and that's the organic baby food company that we built. So let's talk about the, the, how the, the idea comes. Now, how, how the idea comes to you, how you and your partner start discussing, and then how do you go from having this idea to then all of a sudden you're like, okay, let's go. Yeah. So my business partner had the idea for Happy Family. She had a friend who had had twins and was really struggling with what to feed her family. And so my partner Shazi had this idea to create a fresh baby food line that would be sold nationally that would really offer an alternative to those processed jarred baby foods that we're all so familiar with. And so that was the original kernel of the idea. My partner Shazi was in New York. And so I decided to leave Whole Foods, go to New York, to join her and co-found the company. Wow. So I guess uh, what ended up being the business model of the, of the company, of Happy Family? How are you guys making money there? Yeah. So soon learned that creating a fresh baby food at scale 
launching, you know, peas, pureed peas in grocery stores across the country in the refrigerated section was not going to be viable for us uh, at the time that just technology wasn't there. And so we decided to pivot to frozen baby foods. We had these little cubes of frozen baby food that we sold in the freezer section and retailers loved it. We got some initial funding. It was really hard. It was a hustle. We puzzled so many individuals, $2,500 could buy a piece of our business. We figured it out and we launched it. And then unfortunately it was not a hit. So then how do you recover from that? Obviously you have this excitement, you go out and then it doesn't unfold the way that you had hoped for. I mean, many people will be like, oh, maybe, you know, like it's not going to work. And how, how did you guys, you know, go about just keep going when, when, you know, things were not unfolding the way that you had a hope for. What what happened? What how did you go about it? I mean, you dig into the grit that every entrepreneur that you've interviewed has has. So we dug into that grit and we had just enough money to kind of get by for a few more months. And we spent some of that money buying our own product on shelves and handing it out for free in grocery stores. So I remember visiting the Midwest. We were doing a target test, 24 store test in the Midwest. We had a map of where the stores were. My dad drove me around. We would buy up the baby food, give it away for free and try and create um, more knowledge and awareness that there was baby food in the frozen aisle. We found that our data would spike, but then it it would go down again. People just, it wasn't a sticky enough product. And so we pivoted to dry cereal and we got really lucky. The infant dry cereal that we invented was much more healthy than the dry cereal that was on the market. You know, that baby cereal it had, we included DHA and special vitamins and made it more nutritious. And it was also organic. And at the same time, our main competitor in the cereal aisle had a huge supply problem. And so we became the only cereal that was on the shelves. And that really boosted our ability to get to the next pivot, which was snacks. And then eventually the squeezy pouches that we all know. We were one of the pioneers in introducing fruits and vegetable mixes with healthy, nutritious additives into the squeezy pouch. So that became our success story. And how did you land into the cereal? Because it sounds like the cereal was, you know, what uh, was the opening door for you to understand how you could match your product with perhaps, you know, the customer needs. So did you do testing? Did you do questioning? Like, out of all things, why cereal was, you know, the next thing for you all to be like, Let's go with this. Yeah. My, my, I really credit my business partner, Shazi, for thinking of the idea for cereal. She was thinking, okay, why don't we, um, we need to add more nutrition to this first food. So how about adding probiotics and good fats and some of the added nutrition that babies really need in those early months of life and months of eating. And so we, you know, really had to push because our first product was not working, really had to push the development of being able to make a cereal. There were some technical aspects to adding the fish oil and adding the DHA and probiotics in so that they would have, you know, a part, parts per, per billion of probiotics that would actually stay in your gut over time. And we were able to pivot and make that work. Um, from a manufacturing perspective, it was really hard. We had lots of hurdles. We made the can way too big because when you fill fluffy light cereal, it starts out light and fluffy, but then it settles. <laughs> and the baby cereal really settled. And so we ended up with a canister that was only half full. Um, we had to put a st- sticker on it saying, oops, we're sorry, please forgive us. This, you know, the can is too big. But 
know that the, the cereal inside is really nutritious and healthy. So it was a lot of trial by error, a lot of mistakes, but we had the grit to kind of stick with it until we got to product market fit. And I so would I'll, say that that was the hustle that, that got us there was we were lucky. We had a little bit of time. We were able to continue to raise money hand to mouth through individuals, never venture. And we were able to, to get to that place where we finally had flow with the customer. And the whole acquisition, because the rest, you know, obviously was history, you know, you, you created like this incredible brand and, and this company that was, uh, you know, generating interest. And at one point, obviously one thing led to the next and the company ended up getting acquired. So how did the whole acquisition thing with the Danone Group come about? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a lot of, you're obviously so good at this business and I think people should turn to you and advice from people like you that can really help them, guide them. In our case, it was a little bit more of an organic process. So we knew Gary Hirschberg, the founder of Stonyfield Farm Yogurt. We had known him through kind of the industry network and had befriended him. And he was very interested in in Happy Family and acquiring us because he had become a part of a company called Group Danone, which is Danon in the US. We think of it as yogurt, but it's actually a global infant nutrition company. They do a lot of infant formula, infant foods in other parts of the world. And so we developed this ongoing relationship with him. And when it came time to sell the company and we kind of felt like it was time in the sense of it was just hard to raise more money. We were, you know, having some scaling issues. Um, we also felt like we were at a really good spot in terms of having nailed product market fit and really proved that we felt like having a broader partner, especially with infant formula background and expertise could really take us to the next level. So we developed that relationship and that relationship really was the through line for being able to get to the finish line with Group Danone. So what was that experience like of going through that acquisition? Because this was your first business, your first exit, which is remarkable. And also, we're not going to be disclosing any numbers because we don't want to get anyone in trouble, but we can safely say that it was in the hundreds of millions of an acquisition, which is incredible. So for the people that are listening, and also for myself, make us insiders. How was that journey of going through that? Yeah. I mean, I'll tell my side of the story. My my co-founder, Shazi, really led a lot of the deal back and forth with, uh, with we involved at the like an investment banker um, from Barclays, and then we we went through the deal. I would say that the due diligence was sweaty because they were uncovering, you know, things that around they were they were going deep into our claims, our marketing claims, and making sure that they were all verified. They were putting a legal and regulatory lens in the business that we had never had before. Um, we were looking at all aspects of our contracts and being able to think through, um, you know, just how we had set up the business. And I felt it was very, felt like that the things that we hadn't done in the beginning could really bite us later. We had really good legal counsel in the Genuzi group. I would, you know, really recommend Nick Genuzi if you have a food business. They were really helpful in helping us to set up our kind of backtrack and figure out how to make sure things were buttoned up. But we were really, um, didn't know what we were doing when we started this company and we set it up you know, with, without a much, as much structure as we should have. So I would say that it was stressful because it felt like the deal could fall apart at any time for a reason that just wasn't a deep reason, wasn't a reason like we weren't destined to sort of be a comma part of Danone and that our, that our dream would be a good hands with this new company. Um, 
as far as the moment of selling it, it was really interesting. I, all of our investors got their payout and it was incredible. We had people who got a 20x return and they were people who were in my neighborhood and they rode their bike. One guy rode his bike to, to my house and he was like, I can't believe it. You've just put all of my kids through college. I can't believe it. You know, and they were people who were not sort of um, typical high net worth, typical venture. It was a lot of individuals where we had really made a huge difference in their lives. So that was really so exciting. Shazi and I sold 60% of the business at the time of acquisition and Danone required that both of us stay on for a three-year earnout. And really understanding what that meant for how we needed to lead the company while also not having total control of the company was an interesting question of how it would play out. All of a sudden, I remember feeling like my priorities were my own in the beginning. You, know, you just kind of read, read emails, think through things. And then all of a sudden, I was like, oh my gosh, I need to make sure that I'm really prioritizing my emails from anyone with an at Danone email address because... I just realized that I needed to build trust with them. And so my priorities sort of got shifted and became a little bit more building trust, a little bit more political in the sense of needing to really engage with with the Danone at large and help them support us in our need to, to hit our goals. So we did meet our goals. And we were able to um, complete the sale three years after the earnout, And that was a really exciting moment. We also had all the capital released from escrow. Um, you know, you, there's oftentimes capital that is held in escrow for any lawsuits or any liabilities that you might have. And we were able to get that full release of that capital. So it was a really um, exciting kind of journey to, to get there. I would say there is a moment, though, that it shifts from being all yours to being a shared responsibility, a shared company. And it's a natural evolution, but it can be kind of emotional to say goodbye to some of the ownership and some of the dreams that you had for the business. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, you were there for three years. 
doing the earnout. Uh, but eventually, you know, the three years come to an end. And as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So what happened next? Yeah, you know, I was really found myself very hungry for an experience where um, I could do it again. And Alejandro, you have three children, three girls. I, I found out in the pre-interview, maybe maybe the listeners don't know, but it was very fun to find out that you have identical twins and another older girl. I have three as well. And in the process of having my children, I felt so confident, obviously, about what I was feeding my, my babies. They were eating the most nutritious food. I had all this background and experience and going deep in nutrition. But I remember finding myself kind of uh, sitting in the living room, wondering what was happening with my children's toys. I was sort of surrounded with those plastic flashing lights toys. I don't know if you have any of those in your home when the kid, girls were little. But I remember reading that a huge amount of brain growth happens in the early years of life. And only around half of who we become is our genetics. You know, the other half is this environment. And I remember wondering, is this environment with all these like flashing lights toys and you know, all this kind of distraction kind of feeling, is this an intentional environment to help grow my child's brain capacity and develop and help them reach their potential? And so I discovered a doctoral thesis written on infant brain development and went really deep into the science, just like it went deep and loved going deep into the science of nutrition, went really deep in the science of learning and had an idea for creating a company that would be a recurring revenue company. But really what it's delivering is an early learning program to parents with products that we would invent ourselves based on what science says is helpful, not what parents, what people think of as a toy, but really build it up based on what neuroscience says is healthy for each stage of development give parents information and the tools that they need to feel confident. So I had this idea and really felt like I was so hungry to bring that to, to life. Um, and I think that that's the thing is I think that that's that hunger and that purpose that pushes you through all the challenges around fun, funder doubt. Even if you started a second company, oftentimes investors can be doubtful and you can kind of see it in their eyes. And it's, it's hard. It's, it's very vulnerable to, to raise capital, to build a company but, but I really felt driven by that, by that purpose. So let's talk about that for, for a minute on the, on the fundraising. You know, obviously the second time at it, the way that you're viewed by investors is a little bit different because they know that the money is not going for the education so much, but more for the execution. So how would you say that the experience, you know, was differently, you know, different for you this time around on the team? Uh, and then also how much capital have you guys raised today? Yeah, so we've raised 132 million and I would just backtrack and say that I have a co-founder in in Love Every named Rod Morris and he and I are just an exceptional team and together we went out to raise capital and we decided to raise from individuals the same way we did with Happy Family in the in the beginning but then in quickly in the second round really try to bring in uh institutional capital and really build in those those important pillars of support from Google, Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. We have Reach Capital, which is the early stage education fund and Mavron. And then, um, you know, and then thinking about sort of growth round capital later. But the point is, is that I think that it was, it was really a different approach. I think we were more professional in our approach because we had been there before. And Rod had experience building mission-driven, of mission-driven companies. One in particular had gone public. He was on the executive team as that company went public. So he really understood the sort of machine-like nature that you have to approach the fundraising process. 
And um, we were able to capitalize Love Every with a little bit with more capital than we had Happy Family. Now, obviously, you were you were talking about this uh, earlier, you know, too. I mean, your co-founder and and also the way that you value co-founder relationships as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I would recommend anyone who has a vision for something they wanted to bring to life, if if it makes sense and they have someone else in their life that they can attract to co-found the business with, I think that co-founder relationships can be so powerful. And I've, I've only experienced building companies from a co-founder perspective. I would say that the setup looked almost at the same, but felt very different between my first company and my second company. So the first company, I was 49% in a 49-51 founding partnership. And the second uh, Rod and I decided we really wanted to be 50-50 partners and that I would be the CEO, he would be the president, but we would really approach things um, kind of very clearly from a 50-50 way. I would say the 49-51 relationship, really, when it comes down to it, you have to have consensus with your co-founder. So there was nothing that Shazi and I really ultimately disagreed on. It wasn't like she could pull the 51% card and say, we're not going to launch that product and, and it would still be a functional relationship. So I think that she, you know, she and I really worked well together to kind of find resolution. Um, I would say that the moment that we sold Happy Family, because my co-founder Shazi was the, the one out front and I was more behind the scenes, that um, I did really want to have a little bit more of a balanced, I guess, co-founding relationship with my next co-founder would be more clear about credit and visibility. And so I just always want to recognize that that Rod is very much my 50-50 co-founder and we're really building and scaling Love Every together. So then talking about people here, um, I want to double click on, on, on the investors. Uh, and then also, I mean, more than anything on, on vision, right? Because to those investors, also to employees, to customers, you're rallying them to on a vision, right? It's, a, it's, as you were saying, you know, a bigger purpose, you know, a really touching and moving destination that you're heading towards. So with that being said, if you were to go to sleep tonight, Jessica, and if you were to wake up in a world where the vision of Love Every was fully realized, what does that world look like? I think that is so interesting how you just asked that question, because I actually do go to sleep at night envisioning the fullest expression of Love Every. And I think that that's part of the power is visioning the future. And I and I found that there have been months where I haven't been doing that. And I've just started reignited that vision setting. And it is the last thing I think about before I go to bed. And what I imagine from a purpose place is that children all over the world are able to reach their highest and best potential and have their most full lives and be their fullest selves because they've had our early learning experiences, important early experiences that have been delivered at the right time, and that parents across the world are feeling confident in their child's development. You know, there's so many things to be not confident about as a new parent, right? The sleep is so exhausting and stressful and you're constantly wondering, am I, should I be doing sleep training? Am I doing this right? Are they swaddled appropriately? Are they going to make it? You know, these little tiny little babies. Um, there's so much to, even as you go through the later stages of parenting, um, you know, some of the discipline areas can be so 
hard to set boundaries and hard to feel confident and good. We want to be at Love Every, a source of that deep confidence that you're connected to what your child wants to learn, is hungry to learn at each stage. It's actually very predictable what children want to do and learn, especially in the early years, and that you've given your child the very best start. So we want to feel like, you know, this is this global ambition. We want to cover from birth, I think through, we could say through elementary school, even beyond in its biggest expression, I'd love to someday be supporting parents through the teen years too. Um, Right now, we're really focused on that zero to five and starting to bridge into elementary with some new product launches. So, and then from a financial perspective, you know, I see us as a, as a um, really global iconic brand that is like the brands that are just legacy that you know will be around like a Starbucks um, that have that have been innovative, like a Tesla, you know, that have been really great performance um, value uh, equities, like a Lululemon, the public markets. And so I see, we see ourselves as $20 billion market cap or more, um, putting out billions in revenue, recurring revenue, because again, we want to partner with parents in an ongoing way, in an ongoing relationship. We don't want to be a one-off toy company. And we're really rooted in that purpose of helping children be their biggest kind of best, most full potential selves. And you are obviously well on your way, you know, and it's so impressive. I mean, just for the people that are listening to give them a sense on how big Love Ever is today. I mean, give us a super high level on on metrics. Yeah. I mean, I would say that, you know, if we want to think about, think about metrics again, we built a recurring revenue business. We have uh, $221 million in trailing 12-month revenue. Um, 21% year-over-year growth. We're sold in 32 markets um, worldwide, really proud to say. Um, Roughly two-thirds of our customers are acquired organically. So this is a lot of hearing about, you know, your, um, about, you want to share with your friends the favorite things that you love for your children. And so this is a very viral marketing group. And I feel like we feel really proud of that 46% of our customers hear about Love Every through a friend. so we we have broad reach, you know, 60, 60% of US zip codes, 80 for, 85% of our businesses recurring revenue. So a lot of metrics that really make sense to the financial industry, but they make sense because of the business that we've built. The purpose is, is very aligned with how we show up in our metrics. And I think that that is what's going to create this lasting company and this lasting iconic brand is because we have built something that we need to have an ongoing relationship. Our, our recurring revenue is because we want to know when your girls turn seven or eight, we want to know how to help you feel like you can be the best parent, um, you know, as your children age. So that's incredible. And also 300 people, you know, that are, yeah. you know, they're, you know, pushing, you know, every day to really make that happen. 375,000 active customers right now globally. Um, so that are rolled in our program. And then we have many more that have purchased yeah. something from us. So it's been exciting. And-, and I was referring to the 300 employees. Eh? I mean, it's, eh, it's, it, that's, that's really remarkable. Obviously, you know, the, the amount of customers is just like out of this world. Now, I want to ask you something, Jessica. I want to ask you, we were talking about the future, um, you know, kind of like towards that vision that you guys I have no doubt you're going to realize because, I mean, what you're building here is incredible. I'm like super impressed with you, Jessica, as well. Uh, but I want to talk about the past. And I want to talk about, about the past with a lens of reflection. So let's say I was to put you into a time machine 
and I bring you back in time. Let's say I bring you back in time, maybe 2005, early 2005, where you're you know, about to give your notice at Whole Foods. And uh, let's say you're walking out the door from Whole Foods. And let's say you're able to just stop on the tracks, that, that, that younger self, that younger Jessica. And you're able to have a sit down with that younger Jessica, let's say for a quick coffee. And right there on the spot, you have the opportunity of giving your younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Hmm, that is such a good question. I would say that, you know, there's a lot that's emotional about building a company, even if your test is a thinker on the Myers-Briggs, right? Like there's just feelings that happen when you're building a company. You put yourself in the line. It's very vulnerable. And I would say that the people that I've met who've been the most successful at building companies have been able to separate the emotion and the roller coaster of building a company and especially being pre, pre-launch. So having an idea and working on the idea with the acts of doing the daily tasks that get you to launch. And it's so easy to have an exciting call with somebody where they believe in your vision and you think they might invest and you're feeling on top of the world. Somebody like you that just builds people up, I can tell you're somebody that just really makes people feel seen. And then it's so easy to feel like anything's possible. And then it's also so easy to feel like your idea is a total dud when you talk to somebody who who doesn't like your initial product, you're talking to a potential customer, you're testing something and your product, they're not, they're they're dumping on your prototype, which is actually good. You should get really raw feedback on your prototypes. Um, or you talk to an investor that isn't, just doesn't get it. I remember one conversation that we, that we had at Happy Family very early on. It was this woman who painted a picture for us and who said, your business, I can see it happening now. You're going to mortgage. You're going to put a double mortgage on your house, which we actually did. You're going to max out your credit cards, which we did. You're going to um, put everything you can and your whole heart into this business. And I've seen it over and over again. It's going to be a failure. You might as well give up now because you're about to ruin yourself and ruin your financial future. And she was trying to do us a favor, but it felt so demoralizing. And how much do you take in that feedback and believe it? And how much do you, you know, kind of move on from it? And so I remember I just like, I ate some ice cream, let myself feel my feelings. But then I just got back to the list. And I was like, what is the next step that I can do to be productive, to move towards this vision? And it might be that it's exactly the way I'm thinking about it now, or it could have to morph. But I think separating your emotion from your thinking and doing side and putting your emotion in your place and knowing there's going to be highs, and there's lows, but no matter what, you are plugging forward every single day to move towards your vision whether you're feeling excited or not, that is, I think, the secret sauce to being an entrepreneur and being persistent. Um, I've seen too many entrepreneurs be really productive at times when they're feeling excited and they've been encouraged and then drop and not be productive when they're feeling not excited. And that's not a way to build a company. Wow. So for the people that are listening, Jessica, that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Yes, uh, you can reach Love Every at loveevery.com. So that's L-O-V-E-V-E-R-Y uh, on Instagram or loveevery.com. And then I am personally, I'd love to hear from you. I You can DM me at Jessica Rolf. So just Jessica, R-J-E-S-S-I-C-A-R-O-L-P-H on Instagram. I respond to a lot of the messages I get. 
That's incredible. Well, hey, Jessica, I want to thank you really for taking the time to come on the show. Such an honor to have you. I want to thank you too on behalf, I mean, as as you know, you know, I have three little girls. So I want to thank you on behalf of my little girls because people like you, you know, uh, female founders like you are able to really pave, you know, the path for the future that they're living into. So thank you so much. Such an honor to have you today with us, Jessica. Oh, Alejandro, thank you so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.